Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. You've caught us at the start of a brand new series we're doing called Family Matters. Um, it's a series that's been on my heart for a while. Every time I find that there is any semblance, any inclination, any, any thought that there might be some measure of disunity within the church, I, th I think we need to come to a place of reorienting our thinking and coming back to this, this singular perspective on, on what the Scripture uh, calls us into and, and calls us out of. And it reminds me of this. When my kids were young, and my kids are a bit older now, but when my kids were young, uh, there were times within their lives and within Janet and my life as parents that we needed to have like one-on-one -on -one conversations with them where we would sit down and we would have to define what our family is about. This is who we are. This is how we function. We are uh, people of faith. We are people who want to honor people. We're people who uh, pursue integrity and, and these different kinds of things that we really wanted to be part of our family. And so you, you could say that it was the family matters conversations or the family meetings and, and, and these kinds of things. So this series we're doing is called Family Matters. Because the things we're going to be talking about in it are what it means for us to be a family. How do we interact with each other? What do we do when we love each other, but maybe we're not liking each other? Or what do we do when we just legitimately don't agree on things that we're very passionate about, even though they're not things that have to do specifically with like salvation? How do we be one in the midst of all of that? And, uh, and, and so I think it's a really important message. It's a series. It's a series that Paul just over and over again discusses with the different churches and helps them correct things within the church. And so it, it tells me that we're in good company. Like right from the beginning of the church, there was the need for reorienting. There was a need for these family matters to be dealt with. So people knew how to be part of the family of God and how to interact with each other. So here's, I think, one of the best um, illustrations of what it means for us to be one. I truly believe that the Scripture tells us that Jesus, by the work of His Holy Spirit, by His own prayer, makes us one. So if you got your Bibles with you, turn with me to John chapter 17. John 17, uh, it's one of my favorite passages uh, in, in, in the book of John. And the reason is because we're getting into something here called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. So this is where Jesus actually prays. If you can imagine this, he prays for not just his disciples, not just for the people that walked the earth when he walked the earth, but he prayed for people like you and me as well. So John 17 uh, Chapter, sorry, chapter 17, verse 20 to 23. Now, if you don't know where the book of John is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. So you just go ahead, now pull it up. John 17, verses 20 to 23. Here's what it says. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us, now listen, so that the world may believe you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are in one, 
I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Bah. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much. I thank you so much for your word and, and, and how it is an anchor for us. Lord, that, that we're able to turn to it in the midst of emotion. We're able to turn to it in the midst of uh, confusion and, and just even, Lord, our own passionate preferences. And it orients us. It orients us towards you. Uh, Lord, and as we'll see in, in, in the study that we're going to do today, uh, that it should also orient us towards one another. And so, Lord God, as we're looking into your word, may we do so with open eyes and hearts and ears and spirits, ready to receive from you whatever we need to receive. And Lord, that our own pride, our, our own self-righteousness, mine included, Lord, don't get in the way of being able to hear from you. In your name I pray. Amen. So this passage of Scripture is, is a pretty important one to me. And the reason it's an important one to me is because Jesus actually says here that on the basis of our unity with one another, the world will, it'll be a proof to the world that Jesus was actually, in fact, sent by the Father. That just tells you how important unity is to Jesus. Like, it, like he actually specifies it. And it is so amazing to me. He says, like, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Right? Like, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And this is the interesting thing I find. We live in a world right now, and it's probably been going this way for quite some time. We talk a lot about unity. But I've, I've observed that, that I think sometimes even for myself, my definition of unity is wrong. Because anytime my definition of unity doesn't allow for the individuality of another person, I'm not actually asking for unity. I'm asking for uniformity. I'm asking for everyone to act like me, think like me, speak like me, decide like me. Um, and all these kinds of things. Just be exactly like me. Otherwise, you are wrong. So we call that uniformity. Uniformity is the idea that there's this rigid line that we create. That if people don't think like us, act like us, talk like us, fill in the blank like us, we sever relationship. And when we sever relationship, we're immediately disunified. And so I think it's really, really important, especially within the church, I mean, fundamentally within the church, that we pursue unity, which allows for us to work things out with one another, try to recognize that we're not always going to agree, but we're going to be good with each other. And we're going to talk about that as the series moves on, that we can be free to be who we are and yet still be unified with one another without having to think identically, act identically. I mean, certain things within the Christian, um, within the Christian faith requires us to think the same in, in terms of like salvation and who is Jesus, who is the God, or who is the Holy Spirit. And for today, who or what is the church? Um, these are things that we need to hold true and, 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 and as, as solid theological truths that we need to dive into. The practical application of those things, and that's where there's some room for us to maneuver. But we need to pursue unity over uniformity. So even for myself, I find that 
like there are just some times I get frustrated with people. And in that frustration, I'm tempted, and maybe you are too. I'm just really tempted to just say, you know what, I'm done. Like I'm just done with this person, their thoughts and their opinions. Um, because they're not like mine. They don't talk like me. They don't think like me. They don't act like me. And so because of that, I just don't want anything to do with them. Um, I, I, I got to avoid that. Like I, I just have to avoid that like the plague because in this, what I find is that there is no room within the Christian faith for us to dismiss each other in that way. There's no room within the Christian faith for us to say, on the basis of your preference, which may be different than mine, I'm going to sever relationship. As a matter of fact, actually, Jesus here is saying very importantly that I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, and then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We were unified in Christ. And, in, and, and the result of being unified in Christ is that we're unified with one another. You know, that's kind of our starting place. We're made one. We are one family. We are one church. We're adopted sons and daughters into the, into the family of God. And like the Ephesians, we, we live in this world that seems to be increasingly opposed to this notion of the family of God that, that we're called into. Um, or at the very least, opposed to Jesus and his church. Uh, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or, and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So the unity of believers, you need to know, it's not just this feel-good idea. It's not just this weird, abstract concept that's out there. It's a necessity in an increasingly hostile world. Believers have been brought together by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so you could say that, look, the Holy Spirit already did this. We're one in Him. And, and we got some responses we can have to that. Like, we can ignore it. Don't recommend it. But we can ignore that. And by ignoring it, that what we would do is, is just say, forget it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be one with other people. And I'm going to just, um, I'm just going to do faith my own way. I'm not going to submit to any church leaders. I'm not going to submit myself to fellow brothers and sisters in faith. I'm just going, to, just going to ignore the fact that I'm called into unity with other believers and won't even meet with them. So that's one thing. We can hinder the unity of the church. And the way we do that, or, or the way we hinder the family of God, is that we try to get the church to do our thing instead of God's thing. I can tell you as a pastor, there's a real temptation sometimes in my flesh to lean into the things that I think might be good instead of the things that God makes ultimate. And there's always that tension there as a, as a leader um, to say, okay, Lord, like what if this is of you? What if this is of me? I want less of me in this. I want more of you in this. And there are those things that, that as a pastor, I could do to hinder things. There's other things like 
When we pursue prestige or power or position, we hinder the unity of the church. When we reject one another, we hinder the unity of the church. Like I get it, there are some people, and we're going to have a series. We're going to have a, a topic that we're calling um, "You're Difficult," <laughs> because there are just some people whose personalities are like sandpaper for us. But I think that, and, and I understand from the scriptures that that this idea of of dismissing one another, there's no room for that in the family of God. The other thing we could do, right? Like you can ignore it, you can hinder it. We could also embrace it. Like what if we actually just embraced unity? Like what if we actually said we are going to be unified with each other as believers across the globe? Pick your stripe, I don't care. Believers across the globe say that we are one in the Lord and in doing so, Allow that to be evidence to the world that Jesus was sent by the Father. Like, how amazing would that be? Even just on a, on a micro level in our own community, what it would look like to say, you know what, I don't care about which denominational lines that you uh, have behind the initials of, of the church. Like, we, we love the same Jesus, and so let's just pursue that together. And let's allow our differences to be things that sharpen us, but not divide us. Not divide us. To embrace this unity is to cultivate what the Holy Spirit has already created. He creates life. Like that's what this thing does, right? Like so, it's like to embrace this unity is to cultivate what the Holy Spirit has already created. And so, what you could say is that within the church is that our job is to maintain an environment that life in Christ may flourish. So the Holy Spirit makes it. We have responsibility in it, and our responsibility in it is, is to create or maintain, rather, not create, but actually maintain the environment that He's already created, that life in Christ may flourish. Like, what if that was the goal? In Ephesians 2, Paul closes his discussion of unity in the body by giving three metaphors to illustrate it. And so we're going to park in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, for the rest of our time together. But these three metaphors that he talks about, uh, the first one he's, he talks about, he, uh, he calls it united in God's kingdom. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, where it says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Um, it is very appropriate for us to say that all believers in Christ from every age become fellow citizens of God's kingdom. In, in other words, we are unified even across time as family members within God's kingdom. God's kingdom uh, has no strangers or aliens, no second-class citizens. That's the beauty of it. I mean, in, in our current climate within our North American churches, very specifically, um, we don't have as firm an understanding in, in terms of experientially this idea of second-class citizenship. But back then they did. And what was being said here is that that divide that was once there is no longer there. You're no longer a foreigner or a stranger. You're, you're coming home. Like believers are, are attached to a heavenly kingdom, according to Ephesians 1.27. They belong to a heavenly city that's the Jerusalem. That's above. That's Galatians 4.26. 
And these Gentile Christians, I mean, they now have a homeland. They weren't these wanderers. They weren't just people from all these other separate cities. They're now unified from being considered part of this one homeland. Once rejected, now accepted. And being in the kingdom of God has responsibilities for fellow citizens as well. So it's not just that we get brought into the kingdom, that we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but along with that is that this idea that being within the kingdom of God requires something of us towards one another. This is how Paul explains it. He's talking to the uh, Philippian church, and uh, he says it this way, and it's just beautifully said. He says, uh, Chapter 3, verses uh, 12, verse 12, all the way to chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what he says. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win a prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Above, sorry, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what he has already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again with tears many live as enemies of the cross of christ their destiny is destruction their god is their stomach their glory is their shame their mind is set on earthly things but our citizenship listen is in heaven so we're not thinking like we deal with the here and now but the here and now is not our emphasis and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So Paul's life was purposeful. Paul didn't just live. Paul lived with extreme purpose and extreme anticipation of the return of Jesus, and that caused him to move towards other believers in such a way as to cause them to want the same things, that that eternal focus that we should be having. He calls on the Philippians to imitate him, and, and not that he's their focus, but it's the idea of, look, follow me as I follow Jesus. So I'm going to point you to Jesus, so come along with me for that ride to join him in humble, radical dependence on Jesus. So here's why that matters. Because I think it's important that we understand Philippi a little bit. Like the, the, the Philippian church uh, was a church that, that had a context that it lived in. Philippi pr- prided itself, listen, on being a Roman colony, offering the honor and the privilege of Roman citizenship. Like this was a huge deal for them. They were a Roman colony. They offered Roman citizenship. And so when Paul is speaking into them, he is reminding this congregation that they should look to Jesus, not Caesar, for their model of behavior since their primary allegiance is to God and His kingdom. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment. 
that we, our allegiance, our, um, our way of living, our model needs to be moving towards Jesus, not to anyone else. Not to political leaders, not to social leaders, not to um, media leaders of different kinds. It's to Jesus. To Jesus. And the things that we would take pride in, let's be sure that the things that we're going to boast about, we're going to boast about Jesus. We're not going to be boasting about self or what we privileged to or attained to or we're owed or or whatever we feel needs to be coming our way because of whatever documents say that there's supposed to be these things that come our way. We follow Jesus. And we do what He tells us to do. And we live as He lived. So the implication of this new citizenship It's huge. It's immense. Before Jesus, people are alienated. But now, having been reconciled to God, to believing and to believing Jews and Gentiles belong. So here's what happens. These two groupings of people. Now, Gentile essentially was anyone that wasn't a Jewish person, was a Gentile. So for the majority of us, we're Gentiles. And there was massive separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews were God's chosen people, and, and the Gentiles, we were the pagans. We were the ones that the Jews weren't supposed to really have much of anything to do with. And so now what we find is that Jews and Gentiles are together. Like there's no longer this notion of Jew and Gentile that we're now one family, we're one community united under Christ. No second you know, class citizens, and, and we have a responsibility to each other to... Uh, pursue Jesus together. It's a universal experience for all Christian believers, believing Jews and Gentiles had become a common people. Like they became a common people. You have to understand, like there was absolute division here and now they're this common people. So Jesus was taking people who had really significant ideas of what it meant to live out life and he brought them into one home. Uh, different ideological values, and he brought them into one home. Different cultural perspectives, and he brought them into one home. And in doing so, here's what he did. He gave them a common language, a language of the heart that they all understood. Because he pierced the heart. He gave them a common allegiance that superseded all other authorities. Because he is king. They had a common goal, and that common goal was glorifying the Father. And they even had, if you can imagine this, they even had the same destination. Like that destination is, the, is heaven, is that glorious reward at the end of life that we have. And so what we find here in this passage, in this section, is that we are united in God's kingdom. No longer foreigners, no longer strangers. We are a group of people that have been brought into the kingdom of God. And there are responsibilities to that, meaning that we, we stop looking like us, we, stop looking, we start looking more like Him, and we help each other pursue that, and, and we work out this whole thing, uh, and we, we pursue the unity that comes along with it. We're not going to allow the things that used to separate us to continue to separate us. We're not going to allow culture, language, uh, personal opinions, any of these kinds of things to divide us. We're going to be unified. In other words, I'm going to let you, through grace, we're going to offer each other the opportunity to just have our own thinking. But we won't divide 
on the basis of that thinking. We will not sever relationship. But the second thing that he says, so not only are we united in this kingdom, the other metaphor that Paul uses here is that we're united in God's family. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it also says, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. As if being members of this divine kingdom wasn't enough, God's gracious work on the cross, like Jesus' saving work on the cross, draws us even closer and makes us members of his royal household. So we're united in his kingdom, we're brought into this family, and being in this family, it's a statement, um, like this statement is a reminder of the pre-Christian past and the Christian present uh, of the readers. So in in verse 13, Paul uh, uses verse 13 to explain how verses 14 to 18 were made possible by Christ's work. And so if you go back and you look at that, uh, there's some pretty important stuff there that helps us understand the context of what's going on here. And then you see clearly from the book of Acts that when people were converted to Christ, they gathered in church. Being members of a household of God resulted in some kind of formal association. They, they desired to be together. This is, this is how we see the early church in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 47. It says, Though who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions, listen, to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So for those who received the word of God by faith, they publicly showed a commitment uh, through baptism. Baptized believers were added that day, verse 41 which implies that everyone knew who a member of the church was and wasn't. The leadership here of the apostles, verse 42, would be held accountable for their oversight, right? So they committed themselves to the apostles' teachings. The commonality of those who believed in verse 44 resulted in this intimate knowledge of each other and their needs and their commitment to not just know about the needs, but to fulfill their needs. Like they, they sold property and gave to those who were in need. Guys, I gotta tell you, I mean, I, I'm sitting here and I'm, I did this study and I'm convicted because I know that I'm not, I don't know if I would sell my property to take care of somebody else's needs. Like that's how shallow I feel when I'm reading this. But it's intended to be encouragement. They shared what they owned, and they shared themselves. It wasn't support from a distance. It was a sharing in worship and personal lives, verse 46, and this would result in spiritual accountability with one another. Their commitment to one another also had this public impact. Verse 47, and God honored their commitment and added to their number daily those who were being saved. So this wasn't Like, it wasn't a social club, but it was a list of only those who were committed 
believers and dedicated to worship and instruction and fellowship and, and in the meeting of each other's needs. It was a fellowship that was dedicated to loving each other, committed to give and to serve and to share and to spend time at the Lord's table and follow through on baptism. Like this is, this is a pretty intimate environment. This is, and, and here's the thing, let's bear this in mind. That in this, God is bringing together people who at one point would have ample reasons to be separated from each other. Very recently, I've been challenged with this question of what would it have been like for Matthew as a tax collector to be in the same group as Simon, not, not Simon Peter, but the other Simon, who was a zealot. For them to be in the same group. Like, you have to understand that for Simon the Zealot, um, Matthew's activity was equal to absolute um, betrayal. It, it, he was a traitor to his people, to his nation, to his God. And for Matthew, if there was any group of people that he was going to experience the most extreme form of judgment and, and separation from, it would be a zealot. So imagine this idea of Jesus calling together the zealot and the tax collector, these people who were on the wildest opposite extremes that you could possibly imagine. And he brings them together in fellowship, in familial fellowship. This is the largest life-changing thing, I think, that we could probably experience outside of salvation. It's being church. Like actually being church. The third metaphor that he uses is that we're united as God's temple. Ephesians um, 2 verses 20 to 22. Here's what he says. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So the foundation of the uh, apostles and prophets refers to this divine revelation that they taught in which uh, its written form, we, we have the New Testament. The meaning is not that the apostles and the prophets were themselves the foundation, though I guess in a kind of way, they, they, they were part of that foundation in, in that they were delivering that direct revelation from God. Um, but they laid the foundation, which was the understanding of who Jesus was. Paul spoke of himself as a wise master builder who laid a foundation, but then he went on to say that for no man can lay a foundation other than the one that, which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 3. 10 to 11 in Romans 15, 20. So this cornerstone of foundation is Jesus himself. And we see that in Isaiah 28, in Psalm 118, Matthew 21, and Acts 4. But I really like what Peter says about it. This is what Peter says in uh, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, 
See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders reject has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which, also, which is also what they were destined for. But you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so what we see in this passage, I mean, the richness of what we can pull out of this in terms of this idea of what God's called us into. And we understand that we're called and we're part of this incredible kingdom, that we're part of this all just loving and welcoming and structured and, and, and just beautiful family. And now as Peter sees the Old Testament temple anticipated in the, in the New Temple where God dwells, like Peter is, is seeing something going on and he's letting us in on it. Christ is risen from the dead and is a living stone, the foundation of God's new temple. Believers are living stones in God's new temple. Since the components that make up the house are living, listen, think about this. So because the components of the house is living, this temple is living, it's constantly growing. Like it's alive, so it grows. Whereas dwelling place, place, both individually as believers, but also collectively as a family. And since we're together, And since we are together, a living, growing, holy temple, a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit, like what kind of temple do we want to be? Both individually and collectively, like on an individual level? Guys, I'll tell you what I want. I I, I want to be a person who uh, doesn't care about somebody else's history in terms of determining their value. I want to be a person who is gracious and merciful. I want to be a person who... Uh, holds people accountable to truth. And we don't promote negative behaviors. We, we don't accept sin, right? Like we help people move away from that. But I don't want to be condemning. Again, I have to go back to just think about the idea that Jesus caused a zealot and a tax collector to be in community with each other. Like he joined them together. The language here in, in, in 1 Peter is this idea of being joined together, being fitted together. It comes from a, a root word that, that means to be harmonized together. I love that image. To be harmonized together, used when uh, all the parts are made complete uh, and, and whole, but when different music is blended in harmony, even when a man and his bride are joined in wedlock. This is what the meaning of this joined together piece is. But, but think about this. okay? Just, if ever there's a great image for this, the idea of harmonized together. If you know anything about music, which by the way, I barely know anything. But you talk about the idea of four-part harmony. And each person sings something slightly different than the other person. And they're, and they're different. And, and, they're, and they're not intended to be exactly the same. They're not intended to be identical. They're not intended to be uniform. 
Because if they were, not that it couldn't sound good, but they don't compare. Because when these, let's say four-part harmony, these four different tones are coming together, they fill the space that you're taking in in a way that's very different. And it is the differences that, that actually help promote the beauty of what's taking place there. They're unified. They're not uniform. Now this language of harmonize together was especially used in fitting planks together in a ship or fitting stones together in a building. And the emphasis is the harmonizing together of, of different diverse parts. Gentile, Jew, united harmoniously into a whole. As a living, um, functioning, and precious part of that temple, verse 22 concludes with the fact that we're also being built together into a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. So God, by the Spirit, makes His earthly sanctuary in the church. Like, think about that. Like, He dwells in the believers. And, 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 you know, this whole notion of the dwelling place of God. Like, Old Testament understanding is that the dwelling place of God is in this thing called the Holy of Holies. And not just anybody can go into the Holy of Holies. As a matter of fact, the high priest would go in and he'd have to have a rope tied around his waist because if there was any sin in him as he went into the Holy of Holies, he would drop dead. And the rope was there so that nobody else had to come in after him. They were going to pull him out of the Holy of Holies. That's how precious the dwelling place of God is. So if we are now this residence of God, like the dwelling place of God is now His church, His people, like how much honor and respect do we need to offer each other? How much dignity do we need to give each other? Because the person that you look at and that looks at you when you're frustrated with each other and, and you don't understand each other is the dwelling place of the King of Kings. Like that's immense. God, by the Spirit, makes His earthly sanctuary in the church where He takes up permanent residence as Lord. And this would have been a vivid idea for the people living around temples where pagan gods were believed to live, like in the temple of Artemis or in, the, in, in Ephesus, for example, in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 to 41. And it's this idea that, look, you've got this temple, the God lives there, there's this ornament, and, 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 and He was stationary. There's no movement. But the church is no small physical chamber where this idol is kept. It is the massive spiritual body of the redeemed where His Spirit lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. Through the blood and suffering flesh, the cross and the death of Jesus Christ, aliens became citizens. Strangers become family. Idolaters, think about this, idolaters, people who worshipped other gods, become the dwelling place of God. The hopeless inherit the promises of God. Those without Christ become one in Christ. Those far off are brought near, and the godless are reconciled to God. Like It, it is the absolute biggest game changer outside of uh, the work of salvation itself, the brought into the family of God through that work of salvation 
Like it is amazing. We are one because of Jesus. We're one in Jesus. This is what it means to be the church. Like this is what it means. It's not about whether or not we sing the songs that everybody likes. It's not about whether or not everybody shares the same opinions. It's about what does it mean to be part of the kingdom of God, to be in the family of God, to be the temple of God. So we celebrate it and we actively walk away from attitudes, actions, and decisions that take away from that unity. That's what we do. And if, if we're going to be honest with each other, some of us probably need to repent. Like some of us have been so frustrated with the people of God that we've dishonored the dwelling of God by rejecting people, by creating second-class uh, Christianity, by removing ourselves from fellowship with other believers in terms of allowing the dividing of relationship, the dismissing of relationship. We had to repent of those things. Like our unity is evidence that Jesus was sent by the Father and He established the church. Like He established it. So we got to celebrate the, this incredibly good news of what we're brought into and stop Stop allowing the world's systems to govern God's systems in terms of how we interact. The world tells us, you don't like that person, you don't got to be with them. You just, you know, like you just, you got to steer clear and, and, and you, you just, you know, just never have anything to say to them and just ignore them all again. No, God's community of believers doesn't actually leave room for that. Uh, he calls me to love the person. Like, again, Matthew and and Simon, like, if there ever there were two people who would not have a relationship naturally, they would be them. God does something supernatural. And He causes them to be unified in a way that the world doesn't understand, but He directs us into. And so as we publicly commit to Christ and to each other, we declare ourselves as members to each other for the cause of Christ. Where are you at today? Like, what's your view? What's your biblical worldview of the church? Or do you have a biblical worldview of the church? Is your, is your view of the church your impressions based on your experiences with the church? Is your view of the church your impressions of the leadership of the church or the people that you like or don't like in the church? Or is your perspective on the church something that causes you to recognize that apart from Jesus, you cannot fulfill your role? That apart from Jesus, apart from the grace that we receive from Him, that called us into this incredible kingdom, that calls us into this amazing family, that calls us His dwelling place, should call us to a place of worship and grace and forgiveness and love and unity and, and, and diversity but not division. The encouragement 
that we get from the scriptures as it relates to this new thing that he did. Encouragement. So you don't have to be divided. You can be part of something so much bigger than yourself. One with him. One with others. And the world then. The world then will have the evidence that Jesus says they will have. That our unity points to the fact that he came. What an incredible encouragement. Look, I challenge you. Dive into it. Do some self-assessing. What's your real perspective on the church? And can you submit that? Can you surrender that? Can you repent of that if there's anything there that needs to be taken care of so that you can have God's view through the scriptures, a biblical worldview of what it means to be part of his kingdom, his family, his temple. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time here. And I thank you, Lord, that your teachings to us are to help us understand what it means to be part of your body comes at us in ways in various ways to help us understand it at deeper levels and so lord jesus thank you so much that uh, we're not second class citizens that we're not strangers that you call us into one story and that's your story you call us into your kingdom that unifies all those who otherwise would be separate I thank you that you call us into a family unit that's intimately aware of each other and we seek to meet each other's needs as we study the teachings that we find in your word and try to live out life the way you did, Jesus. And Lord, the privilege of being your temple, that you have chosen to use your church as your representation on earth. Lord, would you help us to be a people who become more and more aware of who we are in the midst of that and allow that to be determined by whose we are. We are yours, Lord. In your holy and precious name, I thank you. Amen.